So over the the past few Sunday nights, uh, Brother Jesse has been walking us through a passage of Scripture known as the Olivet Discourse. And we've, we've looked at that chapter, that passage uh, in Mark, <clears throat> and really discussed how we as believers, especially in this day and time, uh, really should be focused on uh, remaining confident, that we should be on guard, and that we should be found faithful. That's what uh, we've kind of talked through over the past couple of weeks in uh, those services. And in the current world that we find ourselves in, I think the necessity of each of those in the life of the believer, you really can't understate those. The fact that we should be on guard, that we should be confident, that we should be found faithful, those are certainly things that we should uh, value and be pursuing. But there's a part of that that I want to kind of expand upon today. And it is the idea of the world that we live in today the world that we find ourselves in currently. Because as believers, we need to know how do we remain confident and faithful and be on guard in the world that we find ourselves in today. Now, one of the things that you'll hear me say repeatedly in this service is the word specific. I think we have to be specific in describing and discussing the current world that we find ourselves in. Because I think the fact of the matter is people, including myself, have been very vague in describing the world that we live in. We'll say things like current events or the world that we find ourselves in or one of the most popular, the new normal, right? Those phrases have been thrown around a lot in the past four to five months. And I think those phrases are somehow easier than describing the world how it currently is. Let me, let me throw this description at you and you tell me if you think it's accurate. We find ourselves in a world that suffers from a global pandemic accompanied by national and worldwide protests uh, on matters of race, all against the backdrop of a moral decline that has been in effect for decades. I think that's pretty accurate, pretty descriptive, but it's not as catchy as the new normal. And so we avoid talking specifically about those issues. Now, I don't bring those issues up to talk specifically about when they will end or how they will end. I think we've done that through the Olivet Discourse. I think we have seen the truth in that text that the Lord is going to return and the Lord will make all things right. Uh, So that's a truth that we can hold on to and thank God for that. I don't bring these up for that purpose. I bring them up because... I think describing the current state that we live in specifically is very important in talking about how we uh, address it as the church. I think it's equally important that we accurately describe the issue because many of us, believers and non-believers, will point to everything else but the actual issue. We will point to political or social policies, we will say that the wrong, the wrong party is in power, or social policies need to be reformed. We point to those things, but the fact of the matter is, whether those things are true or not, those things are not the real issue. The real issue is an issue of the heart. 
But what we want to do today is be more specific about that issue. We want to be more specific about the issue of the heart. And we want to be specific about it because I think it's only in talking about it in detail that we see what we should be doing as the church and what we should be expecting other people to, believe, to be doing as people with these heart issues. So I'm going to ask some questions about those heart issues. What, what, do that, what does that mean? What are the issues? Who suffers from that? Is it something that non-believers alone suffer from or are we prone to it as well? What can we do to address those things? Those are the type of questions that I want to answer today. Because I think in being specific about the issue, you can be very specific in what you do and how that affects the world that we find ourselves living in today. So, in our time together, I want you to look at a passage of Scripture where the heart issues of man are exposed. And I want to look at how they affect us and, and, and how we pick those out and hopefully in in, in addressing those, we can come up with some practical, real ways to address those issues. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. And we're going to look at the first nine verses there. Genesis chapter 11, the first nine verses. It is a passage of Scripture that reveals these heart issues with a little more detail and a little more specific. So uh, if you have found your place in Genesis chapter 11, the first nine verses, I'll invite you to stand only nine verses. Uh, stand if you are willing and able to do so, and we will read these. The Word of God says this, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they pro propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and uh, go down and there confuse their languages so that they may not be uh, or may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You can be seated. Let's Take a moment to pray and ask God to help us not only understand the truth of this passage, but to apply it to our lives. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the ability to come into this place and to, through song, worship you and to begin to turn our hearts and minds toward you, dear God. We pray now that you would help us to continue to do so in this time of studying your word, that you would help me convey these truths accurately and clearly, and that you would help your people hear them. I pray that you would help us to not only hear, but also do something with what we hear, dear God. We pray that you would help us apply this to our lives so that we can begin to address these hard issues in ourselves and in our world. So dear God, help us to do those things now. We'll give you all the honor, glory, and praise for that. All these things we ask in your son's name. Amen. So before we just jump off into Genesis chapter 11, I know it's probably been a while since we've been in Genesis 
We've been going through Exodus over the past few Sunday mornings. So we'll back up a little bit and give a little context before we just dive right off in to 11. So context-wise, I want to look at chapters 9 and chapters 10 really briefly. In chapter 9 of Genesis, what you will see is the Lord tells Noah after the flood and after he's found dry land, he tells Noah, he solidifies his covenant with Noah and says, to you and your descendants, be fruitful, multiply, and disperse. Spread out over the face of the earth. That's an important command, so keep that in mind. So that's the kind of the driving force of chapter 9. God solidifies this covenant with Noah. And then in chapter 10, you have one of those chapters that we love in the Bible. It's a genealogy. It's just a list of names and who their father was and who their son is. And it's one of those chapters that we usually skip over. But what you see in this chapter, which is referred to as the table of nations, is that the command from nine to be fruitful, multiply, disperse has happened in 10. And all of these people have come from Noah And all of these people, really the world, people groups from all over the world can trace their lineage back to the names listed in the table of nations from all over the world, whether that be the continent of Asia or Africa or wherever, they can trace their lineage back to the names in chapter 10. So what you have is in chapter 9 a command, and in chapter 10 it seems like the people have been obedient and obeyed. Go, be fruitful, multiply, disperse. Chapter 10, here's all these people, they're all over the world. Seems okay. But then you have chapter 11. And chapter 11 reveals to us that it was not the people's obedience that caused them to disperse, but instead their disobedience. That's what we see in the first nine verses of chapter 11. That God had told them, told Noah, be fruitful, multiply, disperse. They did it, but they didn't really do it in an obedient way. Chapter 10 shows us that they decided that they were going to build themselves a city, build themselves a tower so that they wouldn't be spread out over the earth. God saw that, decided to go down, confuse their language, stop them from being able to do the work that they were doing, and that's kind of it. That's the chapter. But for our purposes, we want to be more specific in considering chapter 11 because, yes, all of that is true and it seems simple, but... When we begin to read these verses in chapter 11, certain questions pop up like, who are these people? Why did they want to build a tower? Why did God interfere in such a seemingly harsh way with their little construction project? What was it hurting anybody? You see, as you begin answering these questions, you see that there are really three major heart issues that chapter 11, these first nine verses present to us And we see God respond to those heart issues. So today, these three issues that these people struggled with and that we still currently struggle with are worth exploring. So as I said earlier, we're going to take a look at these issues, how we struggle with them and what we can do in relation to them. So the first of these heart issues is purpose. The first heart issue we see in the the people of Babylon is a desire to determine their own purpose. You say, well, how do, how do we know that? How do we know that this is a heart issue? How do we know they're trying to determine their own purpose? Well, if you'll look at verse four of the text today, what you see is that the people decide to build a city. And their reasoning, as verse four tells us, is lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That's their reasoning behind building this city. Now, we just mentioned a little while ago 
God had told Noah in chapter 9, be fruitful, multiply, spread out over the earth. So it was God's purpose for Noah and his descendants to spread out. And here these people, however, do not want to spread out. In fact, building a city, a place of refuge, is a great way not to spread out. They are essentially grouping up together. And the fact of the matter is that even after the flood, even after God has solidified this covenant with Noah once again, the people still suffer from the same issues of sin and rebellion that they suffered with prior to the flood. Because here they are, God has instructed them to disperse. And we see right off the bat in verse 4 that they have determined for themselves what is best. They have determined for themselves what is best, and that is to go against the purpose that God had for them in dispersing. They are determining it is better for them to stay together. Now, that isn't the only heart issue that you're going to see in these first few verses. There is a, another simple phrase in these first few verses. You'll find it in verse 3 that reveals another heart issue that isn't quite as obvious as the first one. We've seen that they had an issue with purpose. They were determining for themselves that it was wrong for them to be scattered. They wanted to group together. So that's one thing. But here in verse 3, there's a great deal of detail concerning their building materials. Did you notice that? It's, it's, it's a lot of detail for building materials. There is a great deal concerning the bricks that the people chose to make. They decided that they were going to oven bake the bricks. That's what it means when they say we're going to thoroughly fire them, that they essentially crafted these bricks and then baked them so that they would get hard. And that was the stones that they used. And then they had what that verse refers to as bitumen or other places translates it as pitch, right, tar, that they were using for mortar. They were using these as stones and then keeping the stones together with this mortar. Now, why so much detail about their building materials if they're not even supposed to be building a city to group up in at all? Well, we're going to try to have a little fun this Sunday morning. Um, the, I don't think the first group thought it was as much fun as I did, but that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens here. This particular word the, the, that is describing the mortar uh, this specific word, bitumen, or as it's translated in other places, pitch or tar, this specific word is found three times in the Bible. That's it, three times. It's found here to describe what the people use to keep the stones together. It's used in Genesis chapter 14 to describe a tar pit that was outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it's used in Exodus, Exodus chapter 2 verse 3, which is a familiar passage of Scripture for us because that is when Moses' mother decided she is going to take a reed basket. She is going to cut a coat the outside with bitumen or tar, and she's going to send that basket down the river. Nothing yet, huh? Okay, that's all right. That's all right. We'll get there. We'll try. We'll try another. Yeah, we'll try. We'll try. Wow. We'll try. We'll try another. We'll try another example here. All right. Genesis chapter six, verse fourteen. Pitch or tar or bitumen is what is described. Uh, as, as Noah's material to waterproof the ark. All right, I think, I think we got somewhere on that one. If the word study was not clear enough, I think the, the truth of the matter is the people are using building materials that are waterproof to make their city and to make their tower. And they're doing this after the Lord has told Noah and his descendants, I will never flood the earth again. The people are determining that the promises of God are not worth trusting 
and that they need to take matters into their own hands to secure themselves. Just in case this God who can't be trusted ever decides to flood the earth again, even though he says he doesn't, even though he's given us the sign of the covenant with the rainbow, even though he's done these things, he can't really be trusted. So we're going to take matters into our own hands. We're just going to make sure we secure ourselves. We're going to build this structure that we're not even supposed to be building to begin with. We're going to make it waterproof. Just in case things flood again, we will be ready. And I think what you see in this uh, truth is the fact that they don't trust the Lord. They don't trust his truths. They don't trust his promises. They don't trust the symbol that he has given them of the covenant. And these people have not only chosen to determine their own purpose, but they're not going to trust the promises of God and they are going to try to take control and secure their own future. And that is the second heart issue you see from this text. And there is a third. The third issue is probably the most obvious of the text and it's probably the one that we are most familiar with because this heart issue is related to identity. So the group of people who have decided not to disperse themselves, not to trust in the fact that no other flood is going to destroy them, uh, they have decided for themselves in verse 4 to build a tower. And they're not just building any tower. They're going to build a tower that is so magnificent and spectacular that it reaches to the heavens. The people felt that they needed to do something, some sort of feat, some sort of uh, masterpiece work of a tower that is going to give them an identity. They want the ability to point to something that they have done or an identity that they have crafted for themselves and say, look what we have done, look who we are. It's not enough for them to be defined by the identity that the Lord has given them through the covenant with Noah, through the identification as his people that he is using. That is not enough for them. They need another identity. They need an identity that is going to be tied to something that will give them praise or earn them the praise of others. They want this tower to reach to the heavens so they can point at it and say, look what we did. Everybody else should be impressed by who we are and what we have done. They are trying to self-produce praise. They are trying to take the place of God by securing praise and an identity for themselves that will get them more praise. So they are trying to take the place of God. Now, these three things that I've mentioned so far, this issue with purpose, this issue with not trusting promises and trying to secure yourself, this issue with uh, identity, these three things really all fall under the, the headline sin of pride, right? That's, that's what we're working with here. That's the core heart issue. But we would be wrong to say that these issues, these heart issues do not still exist today because there are so many people who will try to secure for themselves some other purpose than the purpose that God has given their lives. God makes it quite clear in his word and through his son Jesus that his purpose for people is to know him, to enjoy him, and to make him known. But people will try to find any other purpose than that to pursue. Whether it be relationships or fame or family or money, whatever it is, they will pursue that thing thinking it will give their life purpose. The same is true for trusting in God's promises. How many people do you know that suffer from such 
terrible anxiety because every little thing in the world has to be something that they can latch on and control. They don't trust God's promise that he is in control. They don't trust God's promise that one day he will return and everything will be made right no matter what the world looks like now. They don't trust his promise that if he has started a work in them, he will finish it. They don't trust his promises and so they have to secure things for themselves. They need to, in effect, waterproof their own lives. And then the third thing, this issue of identity. That is something that still occurs today. Trying to define your identity outside of Christ. And there are so many things nowadays that people can point to and say, this is what I identify as, or this is my identity. This is the thing that gives my life value and purpose. And it's all because they don't trust in the promises of God and they're trying to secure praise for themselves. I mean, look at something as simple as as sexuality. People will point to, I am this, I am so-and-so and I am this sexuality. That is what defines me. Well, how is that identity any better than the identity to be found in Christ? It's not. It's not going to give you purpose. It's not going to give you fulfillment. It may get you praise from the world today, but it will not cover over the fact that you are trying to earn praise, praise that only goes to God. You don't want the praise of people. You want his praise. You want uh, him to be able to say, well done and good and faithful servant. And that's not going to happen If your identity or your purpose or you're not trusting in his promises so you're trying to secure things for yourself, that's not going to happen. So those three heart issues still exist today. And as I said earlier, that is why we want to be specific about when we say, oh, the problem with the world is a heart issue. Well, there are a number of heart issues that fall under that generalization, that fall under that general sin of pride. It could be one of purpose or control or identity. So we want to be specific about these things so that we can spot uh, where these things are, are creeping into people's lives. But that's not the only thing that's happening in this text. You have those three heart issues really in the first four verses, but in, in the next few verses, five through nine, you really have God's response to those heart issues. And it's important for us to see his response because it's going to point to a bigger truth that we can kind of take encouragement from. Uh, and, and it'll help us kind of work our way through what we do with this. So we immediately get a few clues as to what is about to happen. If you look at verse 5, there are a couple of things that kind of point out uh, how the Lord is going to react. The first being the fact that he has to come down to view this tower to the heavens that the children of man have crafted. Okay, he's God. He can see anything from anywhere at any time. He doesn't have to move to be able to see something. But the text and God is trying to show us that mankind's best efforts to secure praise for themselves, make an identity for themselves, is nothing to him. This is a tower that was supposed to be a masterpiece, miraculous, that goes all the way to the heavens. Well, apparently it didn't make it there because he's got to bend all the way down to be able to see it. So that's kind of our first hint at the fact that God isn't impressed with their efforts. But the second thing is that the text refers to the people as the son, uh, the son of Adam or the children of man, depending on your translation. Essentially, what is happening here is the people are being aligned with the same sin and rebellion that Adam and Eve suffered from. The children of man, the sons of Adam, these people are being aligned with those who have struggled with sin, who have tried to determine for themselves what is best. You can eat of any tree except for this one. 
Well, I'm sure this one's probably the best. This is probably the one that we should eat of. They're trying to determine for themselves what is right, what is best outside of God, and that is sin. So these people are being aligned with the same rebellion, sin, and pride, that same effort to take God's spot and make decisions for themselves and disregard the commands of God because they don't trust the promises of God. This is how these people are being identified in this passage. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that God finally responds to man's laughable, sad efforts to define himself, to take God's spot, to achieve something outside of the Lord. Their best attempts were not enough. And so God, in verses 6 through 8, responds, an actual response to what the people are doing. God acknowledges in these verses that the people are one, that they have one language, and that really shouldn't be a surprise if we trust the Word of God and what it describes. There was Adam and Eve. That's one people. The flood destroys everything. God starts over with Noah and his family. That's one people. So it's not a surprise that there is one people with one language. And these people who are in uh, with their one language, language are going to continue to unite in sin against God. God identifies that. He says, these people are one. They're going to continue to sin against us. He's speaking in Trinity. And if they continue to unite against us in sin, there is no sin that they are not capable of doing. So he makes a plan to confuse the language of the people and disperse them, which was always his, his, his plan for the people. Be fruitful, multiply, scatter about the earth. That was always his plan for the people. He's just having to do it against the backdrop of the people's disobedience. So we see here that the people are scattered. In the next couple of verses, it describes that that scattering, they develop their own language. They're no longer one people. They actually leave the work of the city and the tower behind. And instead of this coming about, this, this scattering coming about because of obedience, it's because of disobedience. But I don't want you to see this as a harsh judgment from God. I don't want you to see this as some sort of like somehow God is just being mean to these people who didn't, you know, all they wanted to do was build a, a city and a tower and it's not that big a deal. Don't see it as a harsh judgment. God is acting in scattering them, one, because it was his plan for them all along, but two, he's trying to protect the people by scattering them, by giving them a different language. He's trying to protect them from themselves because he understands they're going to continue to unite and organize sin So if he does what he was always going to do by dispersing them, giving them different languages, making them different peoples, he will essentially install a protection for the people so that they cannot continue to seek to organize against him in sin. But understand this, God knew this would happen. His plan for the people all along was for them to be dispersed, to be different. He told Noah and his descendants that very thing. He knew that he would have to judge the people's prideful sin. He knew that he would put them in different languages and groups and and all of this would take place. As verse 9 shows, he named the place Babel or Babylon to reflect that. The word means confusion. Man's best efforts to define himself apart from God and achieve something apart from God and earn praise of people is confusion in the life of, of, of people. So their best efforts amount to nothing. But he knew that. He knew that. And there are a couple of big 
picture applications, implications that I want to take from his knowledge of that, that I think are going to encourage us and help us and, and hopefully help us see what we need to do about these heart issues. So here are a couple of things that you see from the fact that he has done this in Genesis chapter 11, that he has confused languages and separated them. First, this chapter is a foreshadowing, pointing forward, uh, a mirror, a type of, of what is going to happen at the end of the age. If you look at Revelation chapter 18, Revelation chapter 18 is all about how Babylon will rise, that, that God is going to essentially lose his grip on the nations. He's going to let them puff themselves up with pride. He's going to let them persecute Christians. He's going to let them do all of these things. And then from his heavenly home, he is going to come down and he is going to once and for all deal with lawlessness and pride and sin and Babylon will be no more. So just as he acts in this chapter against man's disobedience, he will at the end of the age permanently act against man's pride, sin, and disobedience and ultimately Christ will have the victory in this world. So that's the big, one of the big picture implications here is we look at this chapter, it points us forward to Revelation 18 and shows us that ultimately, no matter what sin or disobedience or heart issue that mankind can come up with, it will not override God's plan, ultimately being that Christ will have the victory. But there's another big picture implication that I don't want you to miss from this, and that is this. We talked already that God knows what he's doing. This was his plan all along. God is not changing his plan. He's not, his plan is not made more difficult by the people's disobedience. This does not make God's plan more difficult. This actually secures more glory for Christ and the gospel. You say, well, how? Instead of the gospel being one group's religion, one people, one language, the gospel now is the only thing in the world that has the ability, has the power to break down barriers between language and people groups and customs or whatever else. And the truth of the gospel change people's lives no matter who they are or where they are or when they are there. The gospel is uniquely powerful in that way. And again, in Revelations, you'll see a pointing forward to this truth. In Revelations chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it tells us, that at the end of the age, people from every tribe and every tongue are going to be singing praises to the Lord. How much more beautiful and glorious is the praises being sung to the Lord when they come from every people, every tongue, every tribe. So God is not making things more difficult on himself. Man's sin and disobedience has not made him change his plan. He knew what was going to happen, and he knew in scattering them and dispersing them and giving them different languages that one he was ultimately going to have the victory over sin and disobedience. And that two, he is securing more glory from, for himself from every people who will one day, as the song spoke earlier, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His name is wonderful. He is the one who will receive all glory, honor, and praise. So we see that in this text. We see the, the hard issues. We see God's response. We know that it points to this ultimate victory in Christ. But, but what do we do with that heart issue aspect? Because ultimately we see in this text there are heart issues and that God one day will deal with those heart issues 
and that Christ will have the final victory and that he will receive glory for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We get that. There are heart issues. He's ultimately going to have victory over those heart issues. But what does that mean for us now? For those of us living in the world that we currently occupy, well, where pandemics and sicknesses and racial violence and injustice and all of these things that are happening against a moral decline that's been in effect for decades, how do we currently address these hard issues in the place that we find ourselves? And the answer is, is kind of where our application comes in today because I want you to think, I want you to think through this, this with me for a second. The reason why we're vague in describing the world and its issues the reason why we're vague in describing the fact that it is a heart issue is because when you're vague, you don't really have to take steps, right? Think, think of it this way. Jess and I, we talk about our budget. We're, hey, we need to tighten up our budget. You think it's going to get any tighter by me just saying, hey, we need to tighten up our budget? Probably not. What we need to do is say, hey, over the next 30 days, we're going to pay this off. Over the next two months, we're going to save this much. Over the next whatever, we're going to do this. Those are actual steps. Those are actual specifics. And I think what we've done in the church is say, yes, there are issues in the world today and they're hard issues. And by saying it in such a general way, we don't have to take steps to change it because, well, they're just hard issues. I don't expect lost people to act like anything other than lost people. So the issues of the world today may be heart issues, but the reason why they're still in effect is because the church has been silent. We are reaping what we have sown in the fact that we have remained silent and not spoken specifically to these heart issues. We have not taken any sort of a stance on these issues. We would rather stay in here, let them stay out there. They've got heart issues. That's fine. We cannot do that any longer. So in speaking about these specific heart issues, I hope that we're able to, one, look in this place and identify those heart issues. That's the first thing. Because we have to look in our own lives and say, am I looking to anything else in my life for purpose? Am I not trusting in the promises of God to the point that I am trying to secure my life, control my life to a point that, that shows that I don't trust Him? Am I looking for any other identity than the identity that is found in Christ? Because the fact of the matter is, if I'm not defined by Christ, if my purpose is not in Him, if I don't trust His promises, if I'm not having my identity, who I am, defined first and foremost by who He is, then I'm never going to look outside of myself and address any of these heart issues that we see in the world. Because while I'm still focused on all my mess and I'm trying to get my own purpose and secure things for myself and identify myself in whatever way that isn't Christ, I'm never going to be able to look at him and say, he is enough. He's all I need. He is where my purpose lies. I can trust him. He is the one that I identify with and as because I am a victor in him. Anybody can be a victim. If you've ever had anything bad happen in your life, you can hold on to that. But Christ was a victor. He was not a victim. So I want to identify with Christ in his victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. 
And if I'm not identifying with him, if my purpose is not in him, if I'm not trusting him, I'm never going to look outside of myself and say, Christ is all I need. He's who I identify myself with, his death, his, his, his burial, his resurrection. That's what I identify with. That's where I find my purpose. If I don't do that, I'm never going to see him as all I need. And I'm never going to be able to look outside of myself and address those heart issues that may be in other people. So that's the first thing. We have to look at ourselves and realize that the heart issues that we point to out in the world are probably heart issues that exist here first and that they need to be addressed. Now, the way that we address them is simple, or at least it's understood simply. Doing it's a lot harder. The scripture makes it clear. Anytime that we are in sin against God, we turn from it. We repent and we seek to give God control in that area of our lives. That's it. So if you're trying to find any other purpose in life, if you're not trusting in his promises to the point where you are trying to secure things, control things for yourself, if you're looking for any identity other than I am a son or daughter of Christ, you can turn from that and you can hand over that area of your life to him. He already has authority over your life. He's looking for you to be faithful and obedient and submit to that authority. So that's the first thing, addressing issues here. But the second thing is that we do need to be more specific in speaking about what's going on in the world and and what the issues truly are. Because if I know that heart issues, pride, sin, manifest itself as people not looking for a purpose in Christ, or not trusting his promises, or trying to identify themselves in any other way but him, if I know that those are heart issues in interacting with someone who is a non-believer in the world, I can listen for those things. And if I'm in the word, and I'm studying the word, and I see how the truth of God speaks to each of those issues, and many, many more, then I can, in conversation with that purpose, with that person, ask God, Dear Lord, help me to help them understand their purpose and your promises and the identity that they can have in you from Scripture. Give me the boldness to open my mouth and do that. Give me the Holy Spirit to empower me to do those things. We have to be specific about the issues so we can understand them, so we can see them in our own lives and work on that. Then, in, while we're working on that, because this is all happening simultaneously, while we're working on that, we need to be in the Word. We need to be praying. We need to be depending on the Holy Spirit to help us speak those truths into the lives of people around us, to those people out in the world today with their heart issues. We have to be specific. We have to look into the Word of God and take those truths and apply them to the people that aren't here. Because we cannot continue to remain silent while people are out there waterproofing their lives while they're doing something that isn't in step with the purpose that God has laid out for his people and are living without the security and the hope and the abundant life that God offers today and every day until we see him on that day. So as a church, we have to first look at ourselves when we look at these specific heart issues. And we also have to have a mind for what these issues are so we can address them, so we can instruct the world around us in these truths about them. So that is what we do with this text today. So wherever you find yourself as the musicians make their way to their instruments and we uh, have a, a hymn to close, wherever you find yourself in this text, whether it be you are struggling with these specific heart issues, 
whether it's purpose or trusting God's promises or it's your own identity, whatever it may be, I pray that you would repent, you would turn, you would give those things over to the Lord. That you would let Him be the thing that defines you. That you would be able to say, He is enough for me, He is all I need, and because He's all I need, because He has me covered, I can look outside myself and speak to those around me. Or, if you're at that point where you are trying to speak to those around you, I pray that the specifics of these heart issues would help you address those. As you're talking to somebody and they're trying to identify as whatever the world is currently praising, you can say to them, that is nothing but confusing and it's never going to give you the purpose or the security that you're looking for. Only one thing can. Let me show you that in scriptures. Let me show you that it is Jesus Christ. So whether it be your own life or how you speak to others, I pray that in this time, you would submit to the Lord, that you would ask Him for help in these areas, and that you would apply this scripture to your life. So.